have your Bible this morning. Good. If you don't, grab one from the pew right in front of you. Turn to Romans chapter 1. We started our study of Romans a while back. We have slowed down considerably to consider the internal, invisible part of outreach and evangelism. Last week, we saw that Paul, because of his understanding of and appreciation for the gospel, he felt obligated to all kinds of men, not just certain types of men, but all kinds of men to share the good news to the whole world. We don't feel the same way. We don't feel the same obligation. There's a good chance either we've misunderstood the gospel, we don't really understand what the content of the gospel is, how good the news is, or we've had a weak experience of the gospel ourselves, or maybe no experience of the gospel ourselves. Maybe the reason why many of us are not feeling obligated to the people around us to share this good news is we don't, we don't have the salvation that is offered in Christ. I heard a guy say this week, you don't have to beg people to talk about what they love. What they love most, you don't have to beg them to talk about it. Ask a grandparent. You don't have to beg grandparents to talk about their grandchildren, do you? They love their grandchildren and they can't stop talking about them. Ask a marathoner to talk about running. He won't shut up. Ask a Cubs fan. Now maybe that's not maybe that's not right. <laughs> you don't have to beg people to talk about what they love. And I fear that that we don't love Jesus the way we should. And therefore we don't talk about it all the time. I was reminded this week in study of Isaiah chapter six. It's an incredible scene. It starts out saying, In the year that King Uzziah died. King has died. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. It's huge, right? The king is dead, but the king is never dead. He is always on his throne. Kings will come and kings will go, but our king remains on his throne. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up, right? Train of his robe filled the temple. He talks about smoke and lightning and trembling and all of these things. He talks about these fiery angelic creatures who hover around the throne and sing what? All day long. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, right? Isaiah has this, this glimpse of the glory of God. And do you remember his response to that? When he sees God in his glory, do you remember, remember what he says? He says, woe is me. Woe is me. I am ruined. I'm lost. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a dirty man. And he says, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. I live amongst the people who are dirty. Remember what happens after he says that in his brokenness? An angel flies over to the altar, grabs a pair of tongs and takes a live coal from the altar, comes back to Isaiah and touches his lips with that live coal and says, behold, your iniquity is forgiven. Oh, that's a good day, right? That's a great day when the Lord cleanses us from our iniquity. And I think for too many of us, that's where Isaiah chapter 6 stops. We care not to read on and see what happens next. We love the fact that we can see God in his glory, see ourselves in our sinfulness, and receive forgiveness from him, and that's the end of it. But you know what happens next? As soon as God says to him, your sins are forgiven, he asks the question, whom shall I send and who will go for us? What is the only acceptable answer to that question? Here am I, send me. And yet so many of us either don't want to hear the question, or we don't give the proper response. Who? Who will go for us? Who shall we send? 
send Matt, send Brad, send Joe, send somebody else. The only proper response is, here am I, send me. I've received this gift, send me. Send me to tell it to other people. That's where we're at today. We want to talk today not about Paul's obligation to the world around him. We want to talk about when he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. Paul has a sense of eagerness and readiness to go take the gospel to the people who are in Rome because he has a right view of eternity. He has a right sense of urgency. He has a right view of these people who desperately need the gospel. And so he's not willing to just wait around. He's not willing just to go about his life as normal. He is eager and ready to take the gospel to them because what they need is the gospel, right? And we need to have that same sense of urgency in our lives as well. And I'm, I'm struggling with this today. I told, I told Joe and Brad uh, and the guys we pray with earlier this morning that uh, there's a big juxtaposition in the, in the service today. Because we start out of this service all smiles, right? We are talking about graduation and achievement. Smile. As the body of Christ, I want to smile with you guys and rejoice with you guys. And then we have the little kids come up and sing cute song that is full of truth. And we smile at them because they're cute, right? And they're, they're, they're precious. And we smile and we smile. And then we sing songs like we sang and we stop smiling. And we engage truth that we're going to engage today and there are no more smiles. There's a line that's killed me today that we sang. As you weep, we will weep. I want to feel the weight of eternity today. We're going to feel the weight of lostness around us. And some of you need to feel the weight of lostness in you. It's not, it's not a bright and cheery day. But it's necessary. It's necessary if God will build in us culture of evangelism, a lifestyle of evangelism, a heart for evangelism, we have to deal with this. We have to go here. And so we will. Look at Romans chapter 1. Start in verse 14. God's word says, Paul says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are, are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Let's pray together. God, we come before you today. And, and we don't want to be led by emotions. We don't want to be ruled by emotions. We know that, that often... Our hearts are deceptive. Our emotions are fickle. But we also don't want to be emotionless. We want to feel what you feel. We want to weep as you weep. We don't want to be able to think of our lost children, our lost friends, lost billions of people on this planet. We don't want to be able to think about that fact that they are not worshiping you as they should, the fact that they will spend eternity in hell apart from you, suffering your wrath from all, forever and ever, forever and ever and ever. We don't want to be able to think about that and not feel something. God, give us right affection today. Give us right emotion today. Guide us, teach us, burden us, break us. 
give us your eyes, your eyes to see the world and what the world needs. Give us your compassion to act and move and speak. God, as we do that, we pray that you'll change, that you'll raise the dead, that you'll bring hope and life as only you can. I want you to do it all for your own glory, for your own sake. In Christ's name we pray. So we're going to talk a lot about lostness today. We need to define what is lostness. What do I mean when I talk about lostness? Lostness is the state of man apart from Christ. When we talk about someone who is not in Christ, does not have Christ in them, has never come to a place where they have repented of their sins and trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, we would describe them as lost. Lostness is a result of sin. The separation between us and God the estate we are in is as a result of sin. One fantastic preacher said to be lost is to be, number one, condemned by God. To be lost is to be condemned by God. And we see that at the beginning, right? Adam and Eve sin. And one of the first results is this separation from God, condemnation from God, removal from his presence. To be lost is to be condemned by God. To, lost is to, be, to be lost is to be an enemy of God, not a friend, an enemy. To be lost is to be a slave to sin. To be lost is to be dominated by Satan. To be lost is to have your mind blinded. We talked about that in our study of 1 and 2 Corinthians. To be lost is to have your emotions disordered. To be lost is to have your emotions disordered sometimes if when I can think about the lostness of the world to have no emotion to have hardness and callousness to that lostness what that means about my heart to be lost is to have emotions disordered to have bodies defiled to be morally evil and spiritually sick to be continually perishing what, what I mean to teach you by saying those things is that the problem of lostness is not a problem of bad decisions it's not a small problem of some kind of sickness or illness. It is a problem that goes to the core of human beings who are apart from Christ. It is a major problem that takes a miracle to overcome. The last thing this preacher says is that to be lost is to be destined for hell. To be destined for hell. What do we know about hell? Not as much as we should. We don't feel the weight of hell like we should. According to scripture, hell is eternal, conscious, fiery torment. I'm going to read to you from some passage in Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. Verse 15 says this. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 21, verse 8 says this, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, it says this, the smoke 
the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name forever and ever. Forever and ever. And that should break our hearts. It doesn't. The way it should, it doesn't. My prayer this week has been that would be broken, that we wouldn't be callous and hardened to the lost world around us, but that we would be sensitive, as Paul was sensitive. In Romans, we learn a lot about Paul's heart for the lost. We learn a lot about how he understands the gospel and how he looks at the world around him, just like that song that we sang. We love to talk about the, the feast that we've been invited to. But what happens when we stop looking at the feast and look at people who are outside the walls, people who are not participating in that feast? Paul, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, knows that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes everyone. He knows in chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin, what we deserve for our sin, is not a timeout. It's not a sickness. It's not grounding. It's not some kind of small punishment. What we deserve for our sin is death. Paul knew that. He knew, according to chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What does the wrath of God look like? Where do we see the wrath of God on display in the scriptures? We could talk about a lot of things, right? We could talk about someone being turned into a pillar of salt. We could talk about plagues. We could talk about any number of, of conditions that are displays of the wrath of God. But I will tell you the best place to see the wrath of God is at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lamb of God, Son of God, God in the flesh, hung on that tree like a criminal, bearing our sin and our iniquity, the one who had been in perfect, in perfect relationship with the other members of the Trinity, with the Father and the Spirit for all of eternity, the one who had been in perfect relationship and community with them forever and ever and ever, hangs on that cross and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath of God is on display in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Isaiah chapter 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him. It pleased the Lord to crush him on your behalf. Jesus didn't die because of nails or spears or thorns or the cross. He died because of the wrath of God against sin. Sin that was not his. Sin that was mine. Sin that is yours. You want to know about the wrath of God? You look at the cross. It's no laughing matter. It's no small thing. It's no smack on the wrist. It's the death of his only son. Paul knew that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He knew some things about the gospel and the wrath of God. And he knew some things about the world. And I want you to see Paul in Romans respond with the things that he knows, with the knowledge that he has in his head as he looks around at the world around him. How does he respond? What does he say about them? Well, in chapter 9, verse one, he says this, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies in me, with me in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. 
He goes through a lot to say, I'm telling you the truth here. I'm not lying. I'm not making this up. I'm not producing this. I'm not conjuring this up for show. When I think about my countrymen, my friends, my family, my neighbors, when I think about them and their lost condition, I have never-ending sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I'm not indifferent. I'm not callous. I'm not hardened. I'm broken. Paul says, when I think about them, apart from Christ. He takes it a step further in the very next verse, and he says, not only do I have this sorrow in my heart, he says, I wish I, wish I could give up my salvation if it meant they would be saved. Look what he says in verse 3. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. If you have children, you know something about this desire if you've ever had a child or a loved very very injured very hurt in some way and you look at them and they're suffering and you say oh i wish i wish i could take it from them i wish i could i wish i could just take that pain upon myself so that they would not feel it anymore i wish i could just step in their place and take it for them so that they could be and that's exactly what paul says exactly what Paul says about the lost world around him. He says, if I could, if I could, I would cast myself into the flames so that they could go free. If I could take it, if I could take it for them, if I could be their substitute, I would. But he can't. But what I want you to see is his desire. He wishes he that. When you look at the lost world around you, what is your desire? What is your wish? What goes on in your heart? He says in chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He says, my heart's desire, my constant prayer for them is for their salvation. That's what he thinks about when he looks at the lost world. What do you think about when you look at the lost world? He says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, talking about the contrast with Philippian believers who are following Jesus and walking for Jesus and believing in Jesus. He says, there are some other people who walk a whole different way, and this is what he says, for many walk, of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with weeping, that they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. He says, every time I talk to you, church, about the lost people, I do it with tears in my eyes. Because their end is destruction. I wonder what's in our eyes and in our hearts when we talk about lost people in the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul, Paul talks about what, what he does in response to all of this. In response to the good news of the gospel and the reality of the lost world around him. He says, I beg you. I beg you, lost person. I beg you, sinner. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I beg you, I plead with you, be reconciled to God. You don't need self-help, you don't need improvement, you don't need moral reform. You need to be reconciled to God. And God has done all the work to reconcile you to himself by sending his son to die in your place. Be reconciled to God. I beg you, be reconciled to God. Paul had a heart for lost people. Why? Why did he have this kind of emotion? Why did he have this kind of feeling? Why did he have this kind of outlook on the world? Well, it was because, partly because he knew what it was like to be part of the lost world. 
He remembers when he was dead in his trespasses and sins, in which he formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. He remembered what that was like to be a child of wrath even as the rest. And he remembered what it was like to be delivered and redeemed and cleansed and forgiven. Part of why he's able to look with compassion on the world is because he remembers his experience. But I think more than, more than that, the reason why Paul had this kind of heart for the world is because this is the kind of heart God has for the lost world. Paul had a heart for the lost world because God has a heart for the lost world. One of the most memorized scriptures in the modern church is John 3.16. And we have lost, we have lost the meaning of those words. We do not understand what it means that God loved the world. We have boiled that down to God loves this planet and the people on this planet. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the people on this planet. That's not what John means when he uses the word world. If you study his writings, when he talks about the world, he is talking about all that is opposed to God. All that rejects him, all that blasphemes him, all that refuses him. When he uses the word word world, it is a negative word. It is a dirty word. It is an ugly word. And yet he says that God loves the world. God loves the world. So much so that he sent his son to redeem, right? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Listen to verse 17, though. It's just as good. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world, the world might be saved through him. That's crazy. That is crazy that God would love the world. But he does. He sent his son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God has a heart for the lost. I'm learning more and more about that. All the time as I read scripture, I'm learning more and more about God's heart, his compassion for the lost world. I'm seeing it all over the place. I'm reading in Genesis chapter 3. God says, after he creates all these things that are so good, he puts the man and the woman in the garden, and he says, listen, eat, eat it all. Eat it all except that tree. If you eat from that tree, you'll die. If you eat from that tree, you'll die. The serpent comes in and deceives them. They eat from that tree, right? And this scene, this scene when God comes into the garden after that, and when he comes into the garden, rather than Adam and Eve going to him like they usually do and walking with him in community, in good relationships, something is different, something is broken. God comes into the garden that day, and instead of running to him, they run away from him, and they hide from him, right? Condemnation, separation, it's already taken place because of their sin. But God goes for them, and he says, where are you? Right? Not because he doesn't know, but that's an act of grace. It's an act of goodness. Where are you? He says, Adam, what happened? Nothing. Adam says, that woman that you gave me, right? Trying to cop out his responsibility. But maybe the part that gets me the most is God is having this discussion with Eve and she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. He says, what have you done? What have you done? And I think for most of my life, I've read those kind of texts with the wrong tone. I think for most of my life, I've read those texts with this uh, condemning, dismissive tone. What have you done? Get out of here. What have you done? Away from me. 
with this anger. And I think that is a real part of what's going on there. But I think more as a parent, I'm learning there's also this brokenness. Oh, what have you done? What have you done? All of this, all of this for you. All of this given to you as a gift. What have you done? God says to her, what have you done? And there's brokenness. So many ways there's brokenness. Everything is impacted after that. I believe God has a heart for lost people. You see it in Ezekiel chapter 18. I want to read some of this to you. God says, If the wicked man turns from all his sins which he committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All his transgressions which he committed will not be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness which he has practiced, he will live. Listen to this. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? God says, you think I have pleasure in the death of the wicked? Turn and turn and live. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, according to your conduct, declares the Lord. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For you will die, O house, will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. Do you hear his heart? He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He invites them to repent and live, and this goes on and on and on. 2 Peter chapter 3 says, The Lord is not slow about His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave Himself as a ransom for all, the testimony at the proper time. And this is not just the Father who feels this way, this is Jesus. Jesus has a heart for lost people. In John chapter 6, we see an incredible thing. There's a crowd following after Jesus, a multitude of people following after Jesus. He's healing and feeding and taking care of them, and everyone, it seems, wants to follow Jesus. And then he begins to teach some hard things. He says some difficult things to hear, and nearly everyone turns and walks away. And Jesus says to his disciples, do you want to leave also? Peter, of course, answers and says, Lord, where would we go? Where would we go? You alone have the words of life. And I've always read that text with this mentality. Jesus is saying to his disciples, what, you want to go too? That's fine. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. If that's what you want, then you have it. But I wonder if there's a brokenness in it. Because he looks at his disciples and says, are you going to leave too? Are you going to leave too? I mean, think of the weight of what we're talking about. Think of Peter's response. Lord, where can we go? You alone have the words of life. Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that he alone has the words of life. And he watches people walk away from him. You think he does that without any emotion? You think he does that without any brokenness of heart? No, they walk away and he says, are you going to go too? Are you going to walk away to your destruction as well? We see it in John chapter 6. We see it in Luke chapter 13. Jesus says, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, stones those who sent her. How often I've wanted to gather you. Your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. He stands over Jerusalem and says, oh, Jerusalem. Why do you resist like this? A couple of chapters later in Luke chapter 19, it says this. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw that city and wept over it. He saw that city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they've been hidden from your eyes. 
influence over that city because of its lostness. Do you catch where we're going with this? Paul had a, a heart for lost people. God has a heart for lost people. God the Son, Jesus Christ, has a heart for lost people. It's the craziest thing in the Bible. It's the craziest thing in the Bible that God loves the world and is redeeming sinners. It's the absolute craziest thing. And it is absolutely the main thing of the Bible. It's the central theme of the Bible, the redemption of God's people. It's the craziest thing, and it is the main thing. Paul had a heart for the lost because God had a heart for the lost. The question is, do you have a heart for the lost? The question is, do I have a heart for the lost? I'm not, I don't want to preach this at you. I don't want to preach this to you. I want to preach this to myself because I have been all week. Do I have a heart for the lost? There are 7 billion people on this planet, think about that. Here's, a, here's like a live ticker here that's coming from the IMB. About 7 billion people on this planet. According to our Southern Baptist International Mission Board statistics, 1.6 billion of those people are hearing the gospel, they have access to the gospel, but they are not believing the gospel. They're hearing it. And a lot of them are right here. Some of them are in this room, are hearing the gospel. Many of them are here in Harrisburg, are hearing the gospel and rejecting it. And I'm telling you, my reaction to that in the past has been, it's on them. It's on them. They have access to the gospel and they refuse it. It's on them. We've done what we're supposed to do. We've preached the gospel to them. If they won't take it, fine. Their blood is on their own head. And indeed it is. They're responsible for their rejection of the gospel. But there's something wrong if that's my reaction in my heart. When I preach the gospel to someone, when I offer them the water of life and they say, no, I don't want it. My reaction should not be, well, fine, go, go, fine, go to hell. What do I care? My reaction should be, really? You don't, you don't want this water? You don't want this life? How? Did I say it wrong? Did I, did I mess it up? How could you refuse? How could you refuse this water? And a brokenness should be our response. 1.6 billion people hearing and not believing. And according to that statistic board there, 4.8 billion people. 4.8 billion people. Nearly 70% of the earth's population do not have an adequate opportunity to hear the gospel. They don't even have an opportunity to hear the good news. No one's preaching it to them. No one's saying it in their town, in their lives. Some of you may say, well, well, hey, hey, ignorance is an excuse. They'll get to heaven and, and say, hey, no one, no one told me about this. And God will say, well, just come on in. Come on in anyway. That is not true. That's not true. And the, the rest of Romans chapter 1 will prove that to you. Brad's going to preach it in a couple of weeks. That is not an excuse. If ignorance was an excuse, if ignorance was a ticket to heaven, we should stop preaching the gospel to people. We should, we should, the worst thing we could do would be to go to an unreached people group and try to tell them about Jesus. If ignorance was an excuse, don't tell anybody and everybody will go to heaven. But that is not the way it works. Not biblically, at least. 70% of the earth's population does not have an adequate opportunity to hear the gospel. When you break this down into people groups, nations, people who share a common lifestyle and culture and language, there are about 11,000 of those. 6,500 of them are unreached. 
6,500 of the earth's people groups are unreached. That means there's less than 2% of them that are evangelical Christians. That's a lot of groups of people. But maybe even more scary than that is a little over 3,000 of those people groups are unengaged. Not just unreached, but unengaged. No one's there preaching the gospel. No one's there preaching the gospel. So what should we do? What should we do about those who have heard and do not believe? That first category. Folks who have access to the gospel but refuse the gospel. Should we shake the dust of our boots and move on? Should we say your blood's on your own heads? Or should we weep and pray that God will give them eyes to see? Should we preach and plead and beg that they would believe in Jesus Christ and be saved? I think that's a better option. I think that's the biblical option. What should we do about those who have never heard, who have no access to the gospel? Well, we should pray that God would send workers into that harvest. We should pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers into the harvest to reap the harvest, right? We should pray and we should go and make disciples. We need to be creative about this. I don't think the only way to go to the unengaged, unreached people groups of the world is through the International Mission Board like our friends have uh, to Central Asia. Did you know that the world needs people with the skills that you have? That there are opportunities in the midst of unengaged, unreached people groups for you to be a teacher. To do what you're doing here in the midst of this blazing light of the Bible Belt you could do exactly the same thing that you're doing here with your skills and education and background. You could do that in the midst of the darkness. Plant yourself there and be one light in the midst of vast darkness. You could be a teacher in an unengaged context. You could be a farmer in an unengaged context. You could be a miner in an unengaged context. You could be a doctor in an unengaged context. You could be a lawyer in an unengaged context. Are you catching, catching me here? Who says you have to do what you do here? Who says that God's not calling some of you to do what you do there? For the sake of billions of people who don't have access to the gospel. You could change that. You could change that number. You. You could be the one that takes the gospel where it has not been before. I'm not saying you're going to turn the world upside down and change the world and save lives. What I am saying is you could take the gospel and preach the gospel where it's never been preached before. You could do that. I believe God would change the world as you preach that gospel. God would turn the world upside down. So we want to think about these numbers, global lostness, billions of people, but we also want to think about local lostness. I did some study of statistics in Saline County, and it's troubling. There's a certain number of people that we can narrow down that are actually involved in a local church week by week an actual number that we can really nail down with some accuracy and say these people are in church every week. And I'm not trying to say that you've got to be in church to be a Christian, but I am saying if you're a Christian, you probably want to be in church. It doesn't make any sense to say that you love Jesus and, and yet have no desire to be with his family. It's a, it's a kind of a low-level marker of, of your faith in Christ, his participation in the local church. There's a certain number of people that are involved in the local church. They're about twice as many as that number, without giving you the specifics, about twice as many as that number who are members of a local church around this area. So about half of the members of a local church are actually coming to a local church. But then the most staggering number is that there's twice as many as that number who say they're involved in a local church. 
twice as many people as are actually members, not just not attenders, there's half as many as that, twice as many people as are actually members say they're members of a church. My point is this, in Saline County, there are a lot of people in danger. There are a lot of people in danger, and I'm not going to declare all of them lost, but there are lost people in Saline County. Do you believe that? Do you care? I, I think you believe it. I think you know it. The question today is, do you care? Do you care at all? Bottom line is there are plenty of lost people right here under our notice. So we think about global lostness. We think about local lostness. Let's think about immediate lostness, and this is where, this is where I'm going to struggle. There are people in Saline County who need Jesus. There are people who live under my roof that don't know him. There are people with whom my life intersects every day in Jesus, who are just as lost as the billions who have never heard, and yet I'm with them. All the time I'm with them. And I don't care as much as I should. I don't care as much as I should. And that's changed, and it's got to change. I hope it'll change for you. And I hope it'll start today. In a minute, when we do response time, I'm going to invite you up here. There's lots of little sheets of paper here. And I want you to think, even now, think about two people, two people with whom your life intersects regularly, who, if nothing changes, when they die, they will go to hell because they do not believe in Jesus Christ. Two people. It should take you that long to think of them. Two people in your life that are lost. And I want you to come up and I want you to write their names, maybe not their full name, maybe just their first, first name and their initial, or maybe just their initials. And I want you to commit to pray for those people, regularly to pray for those people. I want you to commit to God to take opportunities to weave gospel truths into your interactions with those people. I want you to pray to God for an opportunity to share the whole gospel with them in some kind of conversation. I want you to commit to God to pray that he would open their eyes and open their hearts and that he would redeem their lives. I want you to commit to pray for these two people. And I think what's going to be cool is if we will do this and if we will pray that God would move in the way that only he can, maybe someday we'll be able to take these little sheets of paper and say, see this one? See this one that on that day we started praying for and on that day we started reaching out to and on that day we started to care about well that one stands before you today to profess their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and we celebrate like crazy because of what God has done in their life tracking with me global lostness local lostness immediate lostness we need a brokenness people four applications today number one pain write that down we need to weep. We need to weep in compassion for those who are perishing. For those who have heard and reject the gospel. For those who have never heard the gospel. We need to have, like Paul had, never-ending sorrow and unceasing grief in our hearts. We need to feel that pain. We need to weep in sadness. Not just that these people are lost. We need to weep in sadness that these people aren't worshiping God like they should. He deserves the praise of their lips, right? He deserves the honor of their lives, right? And yet they reject him, and they spit on him, and they hate him. We need to weep that God is not glorified as he should be in the lives of these people. We need to feel the pain. Number two, prayer. I want to pray for sensitivity to eternity in my own life. God, give me your eyes. Help me feel what is proper. As you weep, we will weep. Pray to God to do what only he can do. Pity the nations, O oh our God. Constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. Only he can do that. 
Only he can bring the strangers home. Only he can raise the dead. And so we need to ask that he do it. And pray for him to open doors for you to do what he's called you to do. Only he can save people. And he's called you to preach that gospel today. So pray that he would open doors for you to do that. Pain, prayer, and preaching. When we engage the lost world, we must engage them with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What my lost daughter needs is Jesus. She doesn't need self-confidence. She doesn't need encouragement. She doesn't need food and water. She needs Jesus. What Harrisburg needs is Jesus. When we gather together in a, in a large room, we had an opportunity to do that over the last couple of nights. And praise God for these senior girls who got to stand up in front of multitudes of people and testify to the gospel over the last couple of days. Praise God for that. Shame on us. Shame on us that many of us get in front of a group like that and, and we give them a pep talk and we say the kind word and a nice word. When what they need, they are perishing. They are dead in their sins. They are headed to hell. What they need is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't need some lip balm. They need the water of life. They don't need a pep talk. They need the gospel. Give them the gospel. They don't need just food in their bellies. They need Jesus to preach the gospel. Talk about how Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised the third day according to the scriptures. By grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Preach the gospel. Pray. And feel the pain. Feel the pain of the lost world around us. And be compelled to action like Paul was. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Harrisburg. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Central Asia. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Dominican Republic. I'm eager to, eager to preach the gospel to you everywhere I go. Let's stand together and pray. God, we, we need you in all of this. We invite you to inflict us with pain, to teach us the pain, and to teach us to weep in light of the lost world around us. Help us to pray. Help us to preach. Have your way in this place today. God, if there's one, ten, or a hundred in this room who were lost, Open their eyes, open their hearts. Convict them of their sin. Show them your love for sinners. Show them that you love the world that hates you. You love the world that hates you. And that you love them. Sent your son to die for them. And that he can, he can save. He can forgive. He can redeem. He can change a life. God, I pray that you'll teach men and women and boys and girls that. Help us as your people to have a heart for the lost folks around us go with compassion, with the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.